here uh, this morning. Thanks for being a part of Outward Church. Uh, just a couple, well, actually just one thing, and that is THX is here. THX is our Thanksgiving event, and we need to raise money for it. I'll just be honest with you. We got 16 grand uh, that's come in this year so far for THX. We need to raise 40. Uh, so if you haven't given to THX yet, we would uh, really love it if you would. Uh, 150 bucks sponsors a family. And uh, so we've got some ground to make up, but this happens. This, this takes place every year uh, on some level, but it doesn't happen without us uh, responding. THX is where we take a fully cooked Thanksgiving meal and, we, and gifts, and we take it to families that have been given to us by the school district that look like they may not have a meal uh, over Thanksgiving. And so this is an event that we've been doing for many years. I think it's uh, 14 years now, something like that. And uh, we're excited to do it. It's an awesome opportunity to bring the community in. And so Thanksgiving morning, we'll have a little rally here at uh, 9 a.m. And then we'll head out. We'll load you up out here and send you off uh, with you, your family, your friends, whoever you bring along with you. It is a great opportunity uh, to allow people to see what, what God is doing at Outward Church and for them to experience being around other, other believers. And so uh, that's an exciting time. We'll also be cooking some turkeys here. Uh, that'll be uh, exciting and greasy. And so uh, if you like those two things together like I do, then uh, that sounds terrible. All right. Okay. Um, anyway, I should plan what I'm saying uh, before I get up here. But we're in Luke chapter 20. And Luke chapter 20 is obviously after Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards Jerusalem, meaning he knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's on his way there. And what happens is this, is that on his way, he hops on a, on a donkey and rides through the streets, and people are yelling, Psalm 118, I believe it's 26, yes, blessed, he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're throwing down their cloaks and their, their uh, palm branches. This is Palm Sunday, what we commonly know as uh, Palm Sunday. And they're doing this, and they're treating him like a king. And the Pharisees say, rebuke your disciples. And he says, if they don't cry out, the rocks are going to cry out. And so Jesus continues uh, to ride. And then he comes into Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple, where there's, there's these religious leaders that have been misleading people. They're about this incredible legalism. They, they have nothing to do with who Jesus is. And Jesus comes into the temple, and he sees these money changers because people are coming in from all over the place. They have this kind of money, and they need to get their money changed so that they can buy animals for sacrifices for the Passover feast. And so there's money changers, and then there's people who are selling all kinds of animals, and they're all inside of this temple. And Brian Bradley, Pastor Brian, uh, pointed out last week that they're in the, the, the court of the Gentiles. And so people who don't know God can't get in to experience God because they have this big business where they're ripping people off and they're charging people money, exorbitant prices probably as they're buying things at the event. You know how it is when you go to like, uh, you know, a, a stadium and it's like, $10 for a hot dog? Are you serious? I mean, that's a little bit like it was, but they weren't selling hot dogs. They were selling, I don't know, sheep and, and pigeons and stuff. like. Anyway, okay. I don't know if they, I forget if they sacrifice pigeons or not. Anyway, uh, so they're selling all this stuff. We're going to have a little bit of mic trouble today. I don't know what this is all about, but I'm going to try to fix my microphone here, and uh, we will see how this goes. So just try to work through it with me. So that's what happens. 
And what takes place next is that all the religious leaders walk up and they go, what gives you the right? Where do you get the authority to act like you are God? To, to teach the way that you do. Where do you get the authority? Who gives you the right to act like this? And so the question, if you don't get anything else, if, these, if this microphone keeps bugging you or something like that, if you don't get anything else, what I want you to get today is that God is the ultimate authority. And that culture is not. God is the ultimate authority. And your political affiliations are not. God is the ultimate authority. And Kay Brown is not. God is the ultimate authority. And you are not. God is the ultimate authority. And there is no one else who is in that place. And the only question is whether you will fall and be broken on the stone of stumbling that is Jesus, the brokenness that comes from stumbling over who Jesus is or whether you will be crushed in judgment. That's it. That's the sermon right there. You can tune out, right? <laughs> Don't do it. I'm going to talk loud. Uh, oh, that's, I got a friend. Uh, actually, uh, I shouldn't say too much about this, but I got a friend. Every time he te teaches, there's this like 90-year-old guy, blessed soul, who falls asleep in the front row, and uh, don't do it, don't do it. Anyway, okay, we're in Luke 20, verses one through 19. I'm gonna try to buzz through this. First of all, there's a question. Second of all, there's an answer. And thirdly, there is a conclusion to this whole thing. What is Jesus doing? And the question is basically this. Jesus is teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that is everybody. That the, the chief priests, there's the, the lawyers, uh, there's the elders, there's all of these people that come up to Jesus in the temple and say, what gives you the right to kick everybody out? How, do you, how can you teach with such authority? And they say, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So this is a question, or not really a question, but kind of something that's been said about Jesus since the very beginning. If you remember back to the early part of Luke, um, it, it says this, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority, Luke 4, 32. People would hear Jesus teach, and they'd be like, dude, where did, where did he come up with this? Like, where are his citations? Where are his quotations? Where, wh how, is he, how is he doing this without citing somebody? And the reason is this is that the religious leaders of that day would have, would have had this like long and arduous process for how they taught. And the way that they would do that, they'd, they'd say, this rabbi says this, and then that person says that, and then this person says this, and that person says that, and it's, and it's just this long and arduous process where every little assertion has to be proved. Jesus, when he spoke, he just says, I am the resurrection and the life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus speaks with authority on issues like divorce and murder and lust and whatever. Jesus speaks and says, this is what should be and this is what should not be and this is who I am. And they would just be like, where's all your quotations? Where's, where, where's, what, are you, what are you doing here? It's a little bit like going in front of the Supreme Court. When you go to the Supreme Court, uh, or, or really any court, but especially the Supreme Court, what they're going to do, the reason why the Supreme Court takes a case is because they want to say, okay, is this something that previous law 
or other understandings or other court cases uh, speak into, and, and, and that has not been addressed yet. And so lawyers, when they come to the Supreme Court, they bring with them, they, I have this court case, which is proof. I have this intention of the founding fathers, and I have this, and I have that. They're sitting there, they're building their case based on previous law, based on other understandings of that situation that's going on. Jesus did not refer to other people. And the reason why they're asking him this question is that they want to catch him. They want to catch him in a, uh, in, in a situation where he's just speaking on his own uh, authority. And at that point, then they can discredit him. So Jesus, knowing this, decides to not really answer the question. And he preserves his ability to continue to teach. Verse 3 says, he answered them, okay, you want to play that game? Let's play that game. Let's do it. But Jesus is gentle and kind. I should, I should, I, but every time I see Jesus talk like this, I'm like, dude, he's such a stud. He's so amazing. He says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer my question, then I'll answer your question. So he says this, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So John the Baptist was the guy who came before Jesus. He's supposed to make a way for Jesus. So he comes in, he starts teaching repentance. And he's proclaiming this idea of you must be baptized in order to receive this repentance. And many, many people had come and had heard from John. They believed he was a prophet from God and they took this baptism. The only problem is the real religious leaders, the uh, chief priests, uh, the scribes and the elders did not receive it. Why? Because this guy's taken their job. This guy's taken their job. And so he says, was his baptism from God? Is that what God would have you do? Or was it from man? If it's God, it's good. If it's bad, then it's from man. And so, verse 5 and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So, they're, so here's the conundrum that they're, that they're in, which is if they say, well, we think it was from heaven. We think it was from God. We think he's the one that told John to do this. The next thing that's going to come after that is they're going to say, yeah, so John one day was sitting there and Jesus walks by and John yells, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's declaring him as the Messiah. So if they say John's baptism is from God, then what John says is from God. And what John says is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the coming king. And so they're like, well, if we say it's from God, then we're just going to prove that Jesus has his own authority and we have no leg to stand on and we're wrong and we lose our jobs. So that's one side. The other side is this. If we say it's not from heaven, if we say it's not from God, then what's going to happen is this. Everybody around us, all of our constituents, all of our church members believe that John was from God. Believe that John's baptism was of God, of heaven, in that sense. And guess what? They're going to get real ticked. And they responded in weird ways in their day, which was they're just going to stone him. They're just going to kill him right then and there. I'm glad we don't still have that um, for uh, religious teachers. Anyway, uh, 
So they have this conundrum. They're like, man, good grief. What should we do? So they answered a very profound answer. We do not know. I mean, just, just bail. Just bail on this. We don't know. I mean, they conferred. They've got lawyers. They've got elders. They've got all of these people that are around. Okay, so you know, they're sitting there talking for quite a while. And Jesus, is, I, I don't know what Jesus was doing. Was Jesus sitting there going, oh my gosh, this is so funny. This is so great. Oh my goodness. Or was he just sitting there just silently, just kind of smiling, just, I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. And they come back and he looks like he's about to give some great answer. We don't know. That's it. That's it. So Jesus says, well, guess what? Uh, I'm not going to answer you. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. They are stumped. So he says, I'm not going to answer you, but then he kind of does answer. So there's a question, and the question is, where does Jesus get the authority? That's the first part that I just read you. Now... He's going to go into his real answer, which is comprehensive. It is so full. It's amazing. So he began to tell the people this parable. And so he starts out with a familiar story. The familiar story is about a vineyard that, that, that everybody in Israel knows this story. Everybody knows about it. And so Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. It's a very familiar story, and it's familiar for a couple reasons. One is that, as I said, Israel is very familiar with this story of a vineyard. I'm gonna tell you why in just a second. But then secondly, in their day, it was not uncommon for someone to be an absentee landowner. They would buy a piece of property, they would put some tenants in charge of it, and then they would take off. It's a little bit like uh, the way that like a, an owner and a CEO work together. The CEO is typically uh, you know, in the business, he's there every day, he's taking care of things. The owner's jet setting somewhere and he sends them profit or he sends the shareholders profit, something like that. That's the story that he's about to tell. So it's familiar to them and they're beginning to go, hmm, what's, what's going on here? So the reason why this is familiar to people, the people of Israel is because at least six times in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vineyard. Israel is referred to as a vineyard. And in fact, in Isaiah 5, verse 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness. Uh, uh, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold, an outcry. So God plants a vineyard, it's Israel. And if you think about the Old Testament, maybe you don't know a whole lot about it. Not everybody does, that's okay. But in the Old Testament, God creates a nation, that's Israel. He uh, gives them his law, he gives them a way to sacrifice and atone for their sins and, and so on. And he puts teachers in charge of them. But what happens is, is that Israel always goes off the rails. Israel, like, Israel goes to church and they're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. It's going to be amazing. I just made a sacrifice. My sins have been atoned for. And then they leave. And as soon as they leave uh, the parking lot of the temple, they flip somebody off on their way out and they just go, you know, oh, great. And now I've done it again. That's, that's kind of what happened all the time. But it was more 
aggressive or egregious than actually flipping someone off. I know I just said that twice, and I hope your kids aren't offended or anything like that, but uh, it was more egregious than that. It was like child sacrifice. It was like prostitution, sexual immorality. It was like teachers going off the rails, speaking like they're speaking for God. And so what did God do? God said, hey, I came to you and I looked for good fruit and you did not produce good fruit. There was bloodshed, there, there's iniquity, there's injustice. You mistreated the poor. You mistreated uh, uh, the, the foreigner. You, you mistreated the widow. You, you are not producing good fruit. That's what was happening. And so he would send them into exile and he would send them prophets. And these prophets would come and speak the truth of God to them. The, the prophets would say, hey, hey, turn from your ways. Turn from your ways. God has brought you into exile, into captivity in order to bring about a great change in your life, to bring about uh, this massive movement. And But you, you got to turn from your ways. And what happened was this, is that they killed the prophets. So I'm getting way ahead of myself. And so in Isaiah 5, what that's talking about is the failure of Israel to produce good grapes. Jesus' parable is changed a little bit, although it's very similar. And it's about the failure of the leaders of the vineyard, that is Israel, to produce good fruit. So look at verse 10. It says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. The servant is the prophet, or, or the prophets, I should say. So he sends, this is a picture that they see. He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. He wants, he, he sends them to uh, the, the, the tenants. He sends his servants and he says, give me some payment for my property. Give me some payment for, for what you owe me. Give, give me what I deserve. See, the owner is God. And uh, the vineyard is Israel, yes, but the tenants, the tenant farmers are the religious leaders. And Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders right here and right now. And so he goes to the tenants and asks for some fruit, asks for some payment, asks for some profit, and what happens? But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Uh, again, this is talking about, he's telling the story of Israel. And he's basically saying, here is God, the owner of all things. Here is God, the owner of Israel. And you people have been put in place to lead, these, uh, to lead this nation and I've asked you for payment, and I've asked you to acknowledge my authority. Remember, they were asking Jesus, where do you get your authority to do these things or to say these things? God is saying, I've asked you to pay me for the thing that I own, and you refuse to acknowledge my ownership. So I've sent servant after servant after servant graciously graciously saying, I'm, I want to woo you into coming back to me. I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you that I want you to acknowledge me as king, as God. I want you to acknowledge my authority. And they refuse to do it over and over again. Verse 13 says, then the owner of the vineyard said, 
What shall I do? And this is kind of a perplexing moment. It's perplexing because it seems like God is, if he's the owner, he's sitting there asking a question, which is very unusual for God. God knows all, he sees all, he understands all, he knows what's going to happen specifically, he's planned it. But the owner, the personality of this owner says, what shall I do? What am I gonna do? Anybody else, humanly speaking, would have said, destroy him. Destroy him immediately. They killed three of your guys, or they beat three of your guys. What the heck? Why would you be so patient with them? Like, just be done with them. Anybody ever feel like that? God should be done with me. I've had this chance, and I've had that chance, and I've had that chance, and I've had that chance. And I keep coming to this point where it's just like, I just, I, 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 can't, I can't believe that he would continue to give me chances, that he would continue to send prophets, people that speak the truth of God in, into my life, that bring about the grace of God in my life. He keeps bringing these people and they keep speaking truth to me. And yet I keep getting mixed up in all of my sin. I can't believe that he continues to do this. I can't believe that he continues to go after me. But that's what he does. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. There's an echo in there. I'll send my beloved son. Jesus, when he was baptized, he comes up out of the water. A dove comes, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and lands on him. And there's a voice from heaven that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is, there's an echo here of, this is the son that we're talking about. God, the owner of all things, is sending his beloved son to go to the tenant farmers and to plead with them to please give me what you owe me. Perhaps they will respect him but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What happens is this, and one commentator said, and I, I don't know how true this is. I only read it once. Oftentimes I like to see things repeated multiple times in other commentaries. But one commentator, um, I don't know if he's surmising or whether he read this, but it sounds like uh, if you don't see the owner for more than three years, you can basically become the owner just by that owner disappearing. And he's assumed dead, and so now the property is yours. So he sends the son. They hear word that the son is coming. And so what maybe they're thinking to themselves is the owner, the true owner, is dead. So why don't we just kill the son, and then it will be ours. So that's what it looks like. Is, is happening here. And so they kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. <laughs> Immediately, they are convicted about something. They know the story from Isaiah 5 and other passages that are talking about a vineyard. 
They know this, they know this story and, they, and they're hearing themselves implicated in this story. And, the, and they're going, uh, for this resistance, these people are going to be destroyed. And they say, surely not. There's no way. May this never be. But what's this saying? It's saying rejection of God's authority in our lives leads to grave consequences. For them, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. For these religious leaders, the center of their leadership was at this temple. That temple that they're staying in was destroyed in 70 AD. But then there's also eternal destruction that happened in their life for rejecting the authority of God in their lives, rejecting the owner and killing the son. That's what's being said here. So he takes them to the Old Testament again to show them that this is in fact what was prophesied. They've asked him a question, what gives you the right? Jesus has answered with a story and they say, there's no way. There's no way you're that guy. There's no way. And I love this. But he looks directly at them. It's kind of fascinating that Luke decides to put in there. Jesus turns and goes. He looks directly at them. Jesus is looking directly at us. and said, what then is this that is written? Oh, you think that's not what's gonna happen? Oh, you think that's not who I am? Oh, you think that that's not what this is about? You, you think you have an understanding here? Let me ask you something. Why then does it say this in Psalm 118? Remember what I told you earlier. Jesus is riding in on the colt. They start yelling, Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 26. Here's another echo, again, from Psalm 118. Why then does it say also in Psalm 118, verse 22, this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Newsflash, you're rejecting me, Jesus says. This is, this is being fulfilled right in front of your face. This is happening right here and right now. That scripture is being fulfilled in your presence. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared who? The people. Jesus communicates something to them that we need to hear today, that we need to understand. A couple things. It says, the stone that the builders rejected. 
Who are the builders in their day? The builders correspond to the tenant farmers, the ones who are supposed to be caring for the vineyard, who is Israel. The builders are the people that he's speaking to, whom he just looked directly at. You're, you're a builder. You're a builder, he says. A builder is someone who teaches. A builder is somebody who is setting a path. It can be somebody who is a church leader. It can be a church. It can be a movement. It can be culture outside of the religious realm. You can be your own builder. You be you. You act the way that you want to. You do what you think is right. You're the builder. Our, our culture is telling us that. But we have basically three realms there, I think. When I think about it, we got churches that are going off the rails with teachers that are off the rails. We got culture that is off the rails that are all rejecting Christ, the cornerstone, and then we have ourselves. That as believers, we reject Christ's authority sometimes. As unbelievers, we reject Christ's authority all the time. So we start with the local church. The local church, just like these builders, just like these Pharisees, these scribes, oftentimes is beginning to be afraid of the people. They're afraid of the people, and so they refuse to tell them the truth. They refuse to tell them what they need to hear. This is what happens as you see churches that go from evangelical, meaning that they're of the gospel, they're about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the only way to God is through uh, repentance and faith and believing in him, in that faith. Like that's the only way to God and you can't get there on your own values or your own merits or anything like that. And so we have churches today that say, you know what? I don't know that sexuality matters that much, either gender. I don't know if, if, if it matters who you have sex with. Isn't it just about love? So that means that same sex desire can happen and that that's blessed of God somehow. That means that it doesn't matter whether you just sleep with your, your spouse, you could sleep with other people, or you could try out multiple partners before you actually get married. You know, you gotta, you gotta drive, test drive the car before you drive it. What a horrible representation of sexual intimacy, by the way. And why are they doing that? Because the polls are saying that most people agree with these kinds of things now. Most people. In, and there's a large percentage of even evangelicals that are approving of these things. We have these builders of our society, these churches that are saying, you know what? I don't think that's a crime anymore, really. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to cut down myself. Uh, you know, like that's, that's, that's not that big of a deal. As for you, Keith, as for a quote from Fletch. Sorry, I mentioned Fletch twice in two sermons now. This is terrible. I mean, stop watching that movie. No one else gets it. That's great. Perfect. We have these builders of our society, of our churches, I should say, that are saying, you know what? Everyone's against us. Why fight against 
this any longer. Let's just go that way. Let's just go that way and it'll be fine. Guess what? It's a, <laughs> that's perfect because you don't believe the authority of God. And what that means is that your church is going to close. Because if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, then why am I coming to you? Why don't I just go hang out with the culture? Why do I even need church at that point? We have those types of churches, but then we also have lots of churches that are saying, you know, uh, through their authority, they're taking on this political influence. They're taking on this ideology that says, you know, Republicanism is Christianity, and so therefore, everything that Republicans vote for is our thing, and so therefore, it, it, that's right. That's as much going off the rails as the left is. And so we come to a point where we say, you know what? Uh, it's okay for us to not care about the immigrant, the sojourner, it says in Scripture. The very thing that God was condemning Israel for in Isaiah 5. It's okay for us to not care about the poor, to not make a way for them. It's, it's, it's okay for us to speak angrily with hatred and unrighteousness. We got churches like that that are going off the rails. We got churches on the left now that are going off the rails. The builders of these churches are not recognizing the authority of God and his word. And they're afraid of the people. And so they give in to that. And so you have people that are leaving churches right and left because you're not doing enough to fulfill my political aspirations or my ideology. So let me just tell you this, like the best church that you could be in typically is the one that like offends you quite a bit. There's that, but then there's culture as a builder. Our culture is entrenched in the idea of creating the idea of disciples of itself. To go along with what everybody is doing. To be on the right side of history. The right side of history, you know what that means? That means historically, you don't want to be looked down on, right? Like when people look back on your life, don't you want to be on the right side of history? That's what our culture is saying. You want to be on the right side of history. You want to, you want to do what's right. Our culture is saying, be your own God. At the same time, it's saying, follow us. Do what we say. Act the way that this celebrity says that you should act. Act in these ways. We are steeped in that culture of these builders who are building in our society and they have created a trailer park after a tornado. I mean, it is a mess as they think everyone can be their own authority. Everyone can be their own thing. You can be whatever you want. You can be your own gender. You can, you can decide what, what you should and should not do as long as it's not in line with the Bible. And Jesus says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter says that Jesus is that stone. Jesus is that stone. What's a cornerstone? 
and construction terms, it is the stone that everything is built off of. You pull a string line, you put a laser level on, you align it with, and you go, this is, the, I'm in line with this stone. I'm building my life on the cornerstone. I'm integrated to the cornerstone. He is the thing that straightens everything out. He is the authority figure. Is your life in line with this authority figure? How do, you, how do you know that? How do you see that? Well, you start reading through the Gospels. And you start getting into the Sermon on the Mount. Or Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are these and blessed are those. And, and, you look at, and you look at yourself and you just go, I am not any of those things. Like, I am, I am not that. I am not right with those things. You know what that is? That's seeing your life aligned with the cornerstone and realizing, dude, I am so out of level. I'm so out of whack. I am not square. I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. Because as the cornerstone, he sets the pace. He outlines the building. He is the one who decides what life is and what life isn't. What it's about and what it's not about. What it's for and what it's not for. He's the one who determines. He sets the pace. He says the marriage was created by God with one man and one woman. He says that people that seem like they're less than you are more than you, and you should honor them. He says that there's people out there that traveled to your town and they have nothing, and you should help them. Is your life in line? Is he your authority? Is he speaking into your life? Because here's the thing, I don't know who's building you, but if you're not built, being built by Jesus, you are being built by either false teaching, a false narrative from culture, a false teaching from a church, false narrative from our culture, a false leader yourself. Because if you're not plugging into the creator, to figure out how you've been designed, you will not know how to respond in life. If you don't live with the guiding principle that God is my authority, that he is sovereign over all things, if you do not live with that, then you cannot walk in line and be in line and be built up level with this authority that is Jesus. Where does he get his authority? He is God. He is God. He is the cornerstone. Is your life in line with the cornerstone? Or do you stumble over him? In fact, Luther says this. Josh Rice, one of our uh, local uh, uh, family that's actually going to Japan to be missionaries. He a, was a professor at, at Corbin. He like sent me a bunch of information. He's like my research assistant now. It's, it's amazing. Um, I'm sure he appreciates that title. Uh, he wrote me this earlier this week. He said, 
Luther, that's Martin Luther, sees a critical difference between how people collide with the stumbling stone. Luther sees a critical difference between how people collide with the stumbling stone. Did you see what it said there at the end? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is what Luther says. For some, it is a blessed, salutary shattering for whoever breaks to pieces upon the stone. For some people, it's a blessed thing to come to this point in your life where, where you're going along in life and you're thinking, I can fix it. I can make it better. I just got to try a little bit harder. Be a little bit holier. Be a little bit nicer. Get the right stuff, the right marriage, the right job, the right, all that, all that stuff. I have anxiety, and so I, I can fix this. I can use a substance. I can take a prescription. I can change, change my life. New do, new you, that type of thing. Just like I can make it work. I can make it happen. But there's this, there's this moment, there's this point where you're going on along in life and you're going, yeah, I got this. Yeah, I got this. And then like, boom, like it's just, you're down. And there's this point where it's like, oh my gosh, life is shattered. One of the most blessed things that can happen to you is that God would allow you to trip over Jesus. And the way that you trip over Jesus is you finally realize, I'm broken. I don't have what it takes. I can't fix myself. I was on the phone with someone the other day, like, and, and I was like, hey man, you can't fix it with alcohol. That's just gonna make things worse. You're just gonna continue to go, go down that road. You have to come to this place where you realize you cannot control you anymore. You cannot control how you feel. It doesn't work anymore. You're tripping over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. Jesus just takes your legs out from underneath you and just says, guess what? You're done thinking you can do it. You're done thinking that you can make it happen. Do you know how many Christians are in this room that have not even stumbled over Jesus in that way? We come to church acting like we have it all together, like our lives are good, like they're perfect. And people who's who know that their lives are not together are out there oftentimes. Got a bunch of people in here, including myself at times, who all think, I got it figured out. But God in his mercy brings you to a place of brokenness and you trip over the stumbling stone that is Jesus. These are those who collide with the stone unto salvation, Luther says. They gladly smash into it and let themselves be broken so that they are nothing while Christ is everything. Oh, dude. I told my friend, he doesn't live here, that's why I'm saying this. I told my friend, like, do you realize that you're in a better place than most Christians today? 
The, the guy's in pieces. His life's in shambles. And I, and I was like, I'm trying to like speak into his life a little bit and just go, you're gonna come to a moment in your life where you're, you're, you're going to wish that you were right here again. Where you, where you finally came to this moment where you were just like, I don't have what it takes. I can't make it work. I have to have Jesus. I'm totally out of control. Can you, be, like, can you believe that you could possibly get to that point where you would finally say, man, I've gone on in life. God has, God has worked in me. He's, I, I recognize his authority. But man, it just feels like life is just kind of humdrum at this point. Man, I long for those moments back when I was, when everything was, was so bad. That's what Jesus does to you because there's these moments where Jesus just comes alive in your life and you realize you're all that I need. I have to have you. But there's the other problem, which is those who would be crushed. And Luther says those are the ones who are going towards judgment. These Pharisees, these scribes, these chief priests, they were crushed by an inability to recognize that he is the authority. I beg of you today that you would recognize that Jesus is your authority and that he is the one who's in charge. Do not be crushed and spend eternity in hell because you refuse to be broken, willingly broken over the stone, the cornerstone that is Jesus, where you allow him to put you back together in the way that he wants to. Do not put that off. I was thinking of this hymn, which I think expresses the sentiments of this passage. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. Just a recognition that it's all his. It all belongs to him. He made it. This is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rust, uh, rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens reign. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Jesus, where do you get your authority? What gives you the right? And the answer is, I'm the owner of all things. And I'm the son that died for all the false builders, for all the false tenants. I am the son that gave up his life 
so that you could have relationship with the owner. And the conclusion is this. Will you stumble over the stone and be broken, willingly broken, or will you stand in pride and arrogance, acting like you have it all together and you can figure it out, and ultimately you will be crushed. Jesus offers you salvation. He's the son that the owner sent. Will you receive it? You can receive it right here and right now. You don't have to learn more. You don't have to be more. You don't have to attend church more. You don't have to uh, read more. You don't have to do anything. You can just acknowledge, this is my father's world. He made everything. He's the one who sent the son, and I will believe in him. You can do that right here and right now in this moment. Can we go to the Lord's table here?